All right. Welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Constantine Sanders. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Hertfordshire. And he's a founding director of Lex Academic and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts in the UK. His work centers around philosophical questions relating to moral psychology, action, explanation, and interpersonal understanding. Constantine Sanders is the editor of the book, Dylan at 80, used to go like that, and now it goes like this. And he's one of the contributing authors prominently featured in Helen DeCruz's new book, Philosophy Illustrated, 42 Thought Experiments to Broaden Your Mind. Welcome, Constantine. Thank you so much. And and just very quickly, I'm the co-editor of Dylan at 80 with Ga Gary Browning, who did a, a lot of work on it. So I just wanted to get, get that out there, not get absolutely. all the credit. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Nice and to so, meet you both. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. So before we start on and kind of get into like when we want to focus on Bob Dylan too. So I mean, something we talked about before the show. So but before we get into Luke and Wittgenstein and who he was as a person, I want to actually what well, we want to focus on the thought experiment mentioned in the book that you obviously wrote and kind of co uh, I'm not sure if you co edited, but the book that you kind of contributed to with Helen DeCruz, right? Because I think Helen was one of if not the only uh, editor on it. Editor and illustrator. And, uh, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I want to give Helen the credit she deserves. I think she was the only editor on it. it so right. Yeah, so it's completely Helen's book. I'm certainly not a co-editor. And if you'd seen me draw, you'd know for certain <laughs> that I am not um, an illustrator of the book either. She's done these amazing illustrations. Um, and the book is in press. It's been printed, but it, we haven't received our copies yet. So I'm yeah. waiting. I think there's some distribution stuff over Christmas, but it's it's there, it exists, and I think we're just all waiting for the copies to to be mailed to us. But no, I have nothing to do with the the editing process. She just I was one right, of right. many people she kindly asked to do a little something for. Right, right. So before we get into who Ludwig Wittgenstein was, right, can you tell us a bit about the thought experiment of the beetle or the beetle in the box thought experiment, what that was and why it's relevant? So the beetle in the box. Um, so I guess it's it's relevant in in this book because it's it's very nice to visualize. So you know the book begins with um, we can talk a bit about what a thought experiment is and to what extent the beetle in the box counts as a thought experiment. I like yep. to think of Wittgenstein has a lot of, I like to think of them as parables or allegories sometimes. So they're little vignettes, I guess we, we'd say today, little stories, narratives. And we can call it a thought experiment, I think, to some degree. It's, it's you know, whether what is meant by experiment and mm -hmm. um, th that kind of thing. Wittgenstein himself might not have been thrilled by that word because it suggests it's sort of philosophy modeling itself on the sciences and saying we do experiments too <laughs> we just do them with the mind or something mm -hmm. and i think he he would have maybe wanted to distance himself from that language um but but it is a kind of story that's meant to get you to think about how we think about things so rethink right. things in a way and i think it's it's an um, Helen, is, it, it was a very good idea of, of hers to in, include this particular um, story by Wittgenstein in, in, in the book because it's very nice to visualize. So the box is really a matchbox 
Okay, so so we have like little kids. I, I don't think I did this as a kid. I did all sorts of things as a kid, but I don't know, like they'd put like a little beetle in a max matchbox and then keep it as a pet or worse, I don't know. Kids do all sorts of things. Maybe put worms in a matchbox, I don't know. But putting a beetle in a box was, I don't know. Do you do that stuff in Brooklyn still? Uh, so honestly, not in our day in the honestly, 90s no. when we were kids I wasn't a thing no uh, you weren't a, no this no. might be like a 30s Austrian thing or something maybe yeah I mean I could I could imagine that happening in the 60s or something along those lines but yeah in the 90s we already had video games and game boys I don't think that was prominent I mean at that I point. could I can I, picture yeah, I, I can picture, uh, I mean, it's not something I did expressly, but sure, uh, yeah, I'd play with uh, insects when I was younger, maybe not necessarily collect some, but I, I, I have an idea of, yeah, what uh, kids would do as mm -hmm. far as like putting a beetle in a matchbox and, and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, that sort of uh, activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we can at least imagine what that, that's like, and in Helen's case, draw it so... She can draw a nice illustration of a, a boy with a little kind of box, and 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 now we're sort of thinking like um, so here, you know. Let's just for the sake of the thought experiment, it's the three of us, mm -hmm. and we've each got a matchbox, mm -hmm. and um, we each have a beetle in the box. Or at least we talk as if we have a beetle in the box, and that's going to be quite, quite kind of crucial. So we we share this language of talking of the beetle in 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 our box, and we we kind of you know I open my box and I say, "Ha, huh, my beetle's kind of blue," or "My beetle is missing a leg," or whatever. And then you look at yours and you say, "Oh, mine's purple," or you know, "My beetle has." 27 legs and I'm like nah you're lying or whatever so so we, we we've got this and now he sets a kind of a rule about this um which you might think is a weird thing to to do initially but he says suppose that nobody could look into anybody else's box right so whether this is just the rule of the game or whether it's somehow impossible to do this the point is we, we never look into the other person's um, box. We're just kind of describing what's in our box and you tell me what's in yours and I tell you what's in mine and we say, oh, I've got a beetle too and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so here the, the analogy um, begins and he's, he's looking, he's trying to talk to those philosophers who are thinking things like, you can never know what's in my head, only I can know what's in my head, mm -hmm. right? So, so the idea here is that um, I can tell you what I'm thinking, but how will you know if I'm lying or not? You can't get inside my head to check. So you sort of have to take my word for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and lying is kind of a very small part of this, um, the bigger kind of um, worry for skeptics about other minds, this is the sort of skepticism about other minds, is that um, even if we're all speaking honestly to one another, how do we know that 
Um, this is the, the classic case. It might be something like color inverted spectrum. So how do you know that what I see as blue is the same as what you see as blue? Um, and so on. So there's this kind of skeptic that, you know, when I when I look at this pencil, um, there's, there's a lot of philosophers in Wittgenstein's time, but still today who would say, um, they might use slightly different language today. So in Wittgenstein's time, you would talk of sense data. Today, people might talk of qualia, and there mm -hmm. are sort of slight differences in the concepts. But the idea is that I have some kind of imagery associated with this in my head. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe um, you have some too, but how can we ever check um, whether what's in my head is the same as what's in, in your head? And, mm -hmm. uh, and now the beetle in the box parable, if you like, is meant to get us to think about this differently. And I guess um, from the outset, he has, uh, you know, it's one thing that's important to remember is that, that Wittgenstein is an anti-skeptic so he, he's arguing against the skeptic here. So he's not using the example to motivate skepticism about other minds. He's doing the opposite, um, but he's a very particular and peculiar kind of anti-skeptic because he doesn't wanna show that the skeptic is wrong, that the skeptic has a thesis that's false. He wants to show that the, what the skeptic is doing is either nonsense in the way Wittgenstein uses this word, which if we have time, we, we might talk about. Mm -hmm. So that what, we can, what the skeptic is saying is, is really nothing. It's meaningless, it's vacuous. Um, it's not false, according to Wittgenstein. Um, now, how we understand nonsense is, is difficult here, whether it's like saying abracadabra or something, or abracadabra is a bad example, but blah, 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 whatever, or sure. whether it's sort of, one way of talking about it is like, it's a wheel that moves nothing. It's got no pragmatic function. So the skeptic has a way of talking and we can give meaning to those words within the philosophy classroom, but they don't really attach to, to real life um, kind of meaning. Um, now, the, the, wait, I'm sorry. Can, can we yeah. just clar just clarify for the listener? Definitely. And what would, the, what would the skeptic's argument be? So the skeptic's argument um, would be that um, while we're both, it seems we're all looking. All three of us are looking at the same pencil. Mm -hmm. um, we're all looking at it somehow indirectly maybe mm -hmm. you guys even less directly than me because you've mm -hmm. got the whole zoom thing right. or yeah but but um we're um because um there's the pencil in reality and then there's the kind of image of the pencil that we uh, allegedly have in in our mind mm -hmm. um and there's a question of whether we see reality as it actually is or whether we see it kind of indirectly through this image in our mind. And, and there are skeptics who try and back this up with science and will say inver inverse images in the retina and so on. And right, right. there are discussions we can have about whether that's an accurate description of what's going on. Um, right, illusionism, uh, essentially the argument. Yeah, it's a form yeah. of illusionism. So, right. so the, the thought is that, and not illusionism sort of about consciousness in a mm -hmm. big, big, big way, but it's mm -hmm. the thought that, um, you might see things 
differently to to how how, how I see them. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know, like philosophers, they distinguish between primary and secondary qualities. Um, and the idea there, this is like an old um, distinction from early modern days, if not before, where the idea is that it's going to be very hard to think that you see a circle and I see a triangle. Mm -hmm. So sort of the, those kind of qualities, we can't be mistaken about that. But we might, there might nonetheless be the, be the sort of suspicion that how do I know that what you see as blue is the same as me or whatever? And yeah. more importantly, I mean, I've been using perception because it's really easy, but people talk of pain. How do you know that what you call pain is the same thing as what I call pain? So the right, skepticism right. starts from the thought that only I can have my pain. And that's, and Wittgenstein wants to tell us this is a grammatical remark. It's not an empirical remark. It's uh -huh. nonsense to say, I can have your pain. Or if it's not nonsense, it might be um, true in this kind of looser metaphorical sense in which we say, I feel your pain, man, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But to the, in, in the, in the sense in which the skeptic wants to deny that I can feel your pain, Wittgenstein wants to say, this is not a possibility you're denying the truth of. It just makes no sense to say, I have your headache. Mm -hmm. So a uh, question then, uh, hopefully I understand the thought experiment. So essentially uh, Wittgenstein um, begins with pain, right? Uh, I know how my pain feels. However, I may not know the experience of someone else's pain. So then he creates that, that uh, thought experiment of the beetle in a box and everyone has their own beetle in a box or you can say their own pain, their own emotion, their own subjectivity in that box that no one else has access to except for that particular person. So, uh, and that, okay, so that creates the uh, understanding that yes, everyone has a subjective sort of um, uh, constantly changing interpretation of, not interpretation, rather something that's constantly in flux, that sort of subjectivity inside of them. Now, is he saying that because we have the commonality of language, so for example, when we talk about a concept like pain, uh, for example, since we all understand what the concept of pain is, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that just because we can't understand someone else's pain that we can't talk about it. Is, is that the understanding or? That, that's certainly a big part of it. That's completely okay. on, on, on the right track. So so yeah, so so first of all, the, the beetle in the box, and I, I will talk more about that in a second, the, be the beetle in the box is not there to, to defend skepticism, or it, it's, it's there to try and do so, to show what's misguided about skepticism. And you're right that one of the things that's going to be misguided ab about the skepticism that was prevalent, even in his time, like in Russell's works, and to some degree, and, and so on, um, is that we have this common language and it wouldn't be even possible to say things like, you can't feel my pain if we didn't have an, a shared understanding of what is meant by pain. And in fact, the remark, you can't feel my pain for Wittgenstein is what he calls a rule of grammar. It's part of what tells us how we use the, the word and how the concept of pain functions. So it's part of the concept of the very concept of pain that I can't feel your headache or right, something right. like, right? That 
That's what we mean by a headache. It's not like we know what a headache is and then, oh, darn, what a shame. I can't feel yours or something. It, mm -hmm. That's part of what, it, what a, a headache is. And in, in the case of blue, what he would say is when you say this is blue, this refers to what we're pointing at. Mm -hmm. And we're all pointing at the same thing. So blue is not the name of something inner. Right. Blue is the name of something outer that we can all see and point to. So, so the common language and the shared concept refers to the fact that the criteria um, for getting something right, you know, is this green or blue, is outer. It's what he calls outer criteria, not inward. It's not inside um, the mind. And likewise for pain, the criteria for whether someone is in pain, Wittgenstein wants to say, is that they're screaming in agony or Never. saying ow or whatever and when he talks about how we learn pain behavior he says we we just go ow and then our our parents if if they're sick of hearing ow teach us you know don't scream say mommy i'm in pain or something like that mm -hmm. um so now when we get back to the beetle with this in mind the um the idea is that um what's going to be the inner thing and what's going to be the outer thing here as an analogy to what we just did with pointing here versus right. th this kind of philosopher's obsession with pointing introspection right mm. the, the kind of pointing inner and can, i think what's really powerful about the beetle in the box is that introspection is a kind of metaphor in philosophy because it's not like you're drilling a hole in your skull and looking inside right it's right. a kind of metaphor and he's trying to kind of push it to understand it so the first thing he does is he takes it out it's a box that i'm holding so i'm no longer looking inner in some kind of um, um sort of well well that's in a in principle i could open the box and show it to you right so mm -hmm. so he takes the inner and he he puts it it's still inner because it's inside the box but now we've got something that's otherwise kind of external so he kind of demythologizes this obsession with the inner theater of the mind and now we have this inner theater of the matchbox and it feels a lot more it's a lot easier to understand what we mean by inner it's just what's inside the box now right. so mm -hmm. we got rid of all this stuff that's kind of maybe um complicated and obscure in some ways um, but we keep what's important, which is no one can see inside other than me, right? If I if I close my eyes and imagine something, only I can see what I'm what I'm imagining. So we keep the um, the first person authority, if you like. But we've got something that's very. And now, as as Alan was saying, now begins the question of the language game. What is it? that we're talking about when we talk about a beetle. And um, there's this thing that's very kind of famous or infamous in Wittgenstein called the, the private language argument. And you know whether it is an argument or a series of arguments or none of these things and where exactly it occurs in Wittgenstein and what the conclusion of the argument is and what the premises of the... There's a lot of disagreement on this. So we can just kind of leave, leave a, most of that aside for now so we don't get completely distracted with, with exegesis. Um, but part of what's going on in these series of remarks is that 
it and 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 this is what I think Alan was referring to earlier is that language is a shared thing. It can't be the case that language is private all the way down. Only I know what I mean by any of the terms I use, whether it's pain, pencil, blue, or you know, coffee, lamp, zoom. You know, we wouldn't be able to. We're not communicating on some kind of faith that somehow, by some miracle, you you're using the words um, the same way that I am. Right. Um, so there's. Um, so now, when we talk about the the beetle in the box, the question becomes. What is private and what is public in this kind of Wittgenstein, Wittgensteinian sense? What is in principle shareable and, and what is somehow unique to me? And of course, in principle is weird because I can open the matchbox uh, and show you, but Wittgenstein wants to kind of push that and say that if we're already talking of, we've already agreed that beetle is the, the word we're using for what's in, in the box. Uh, so the skepticism that says, well, maybe you've got a caterpillar in your box and you're just calling it a beetle. And, or may, you know, how do I know that you don't have a worm in your box? How do I know that's a beetle? How do I know you're using the word beetle in the same way as me? Well, yeah. it's a bit like this. Now, what are the outer criteria? That's hard to see because we've just got these matchboxes. So right. Wittgenstein says, beetle just means whatever's in the box. That's what the word beetle means. Um, blue just, right? And, and, and so um, now whatever's in the box doesn't mean that beetle for me means what's in my box and for you means what's in your box. That would be like a private line. We all agree that um, beetle is what's in your box and my box and so on. So that's the shared language. And he, he, he pushes this. He says, maybe there's nothing in your box. And even if there's nothing in your box, we'd call that a beetle. Right. And, and so he's trying to see how, how this, what he calls a primitive language game works. How would the language game work of having these matchboxes that we're not allowed to look inside? And we're all talking of, of beetle. And it, it blocks, that way of talking seems to block the move maybe you have a worm in your box because beetle just is the word for the thing we all have in our boxes. Does that, I feel I've been babbling for so long. No, I, 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 think, I think I understand. Uh, we've essentially established a rule that we're calling this thing inside the box a beetle. So everyone now must essentially follow the rule that they have a beetle in their box. Even if they're lying, they're still referring to a beetle, which everyone sharing the commonality of of language would understand what a beetle is and therefore understand that there's a beetle in each person's box mm -hmm. and so you couldn't go beyond that and assume there's something else i mean even if they're i mean they could lie but barring lying you're referring to it yeah can I add, so lying can, is a yeah, yeah, sorry. No, I, no, I was yeah, I was just gonna add to that. So it seems like yeah, we we we're starting with the assumption that um that we're essentially assuming that everybody has a beetle, right? So it's like where the skeptic would essentially say something along the lines of, well, we don't know if the beetle is there. If it isn't, right, we can't really uh, we don't have like any proof because we're not in that person's head or their mind. Whereas Wittgenstein is saying, uh, I think he's saying that it's actually not that important uh, from my understanding of it. He's saying that no, we just have it. 
it's not that important. And now if you mm. leave lying, because skeptics, it's not lying that they're primarily worried about, right? It's mm -hmm. the thought that even if we're all kind of being honest, we'll never know what the other is thinking or feeling or whatever. Right. Um, and so now what can we do in the case of the beetle? Um, talking of illustrations, I might say, hey, Leon, can you draw us the beetle in your box, right? I'm mm -hmm. not allowed to look in your box, but you can draw what that looks like. Right. And okay, if you're as bad as me, maybe we'll have trouble. But let's assume we're all as great as Helen is uh, illustrating things. So then we all illustrate the beetle. And now we have outward criteria for whether, assuming nobody is lying, mm -hmm. we have outward criteria for whether, you know, if you draw something and it looks like a snake, mm -hmm. I might be like, oh, that's not what I meant by beetle. Mm -hmm. And that means that it's not that the things in all our boxes must be the same. Wittgenstein never says whatever's going on in your head and my head must be the same. The point is, if it isn't the same, there'll be a way of finding out, mm -hmm. right? If, if your headache feels different, there'll be a way of finding out. And, and there's a nice example with color, which is, you know, of course there are colorblind people, but hey, we know this. Why do we know this? Because they can't distinguish red from green, for example. And that criteria is public. We don't right. need to go into their head to see it. We can see that when the light changes from, 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 from red to green, it makes no, no difference. Mm. Um, um, for the, and so that criteria is public. And it's the same with the beetle. If we all start drawing really different things, right. then, then we'll be like, oh, hey, okay, you've got something different there um you're beetle blind or whatever if you can't tell the difference between my right. beetle and and uh, alan's beetle or, or whatever so it's this idea that the the criteria are are ultimately always public because the language what we mean by beetle is going to be some and and we can even go as far you know i might draw something and i might say look, I did my best, but this doesn't quite look like the beetle in my box. Let me right. describe it to you better. And, I, and, I, and, and that's how it works. And of course, in doing all these things, we're using further words that are meant to be shared and so on. And part of Wittgenstein's point is that the skeptic isn't allowed to use any of these words. They're not allowed to even express their worry because when you're using these words, you're sort of assuming they mean what that the reader understands them the same way um, that, that you do. And so you've already kind of assumed um, an anti-skeptical position. Does that? Yeah. And so what was the importance like for him of this? Why was it important for him to share this with the world? Huh, that, that is um, a very good question. Um, whether he thought he was sharing it with the world, he's got this, this preface to, I mean, Wittgenstein, is a very precious sort of person. And he's got this, this preface that basically says, you know, he doesn't know whether anyone else will understand his thoughts, mm -hmm. but, you know, so long as one person could in principle. So it's not that he's here thinking, I'm going to convince the world of the, and, in, and sometimes he's speaking, not explicitly, but implicitly to very particular people, mm -hmm. um, colleagues of his, friends of his, teachers, students, G. Moore, Russell, maybe people from the history of philosophy that he hasn't even read that much, but has knows about Descartes' views or, or whatever that's in the air. Mm -hmm. and, and he's sort of, and he's really interested more generally to sort of move away from, 
from the Beatle in particular in, in this idea that philosophy thinks that there are all these metaphysical problems and that somehow if we think hard enough about them, we might reach a truth, whether it's skeptical or otherwise. Mm. And that really these are just linguistic problems or rather um, mm. they are philosophical problems, but we're what he says, bewitched by language or by grammar. So, so there's something about the way words happen to work that misleads us into thinking um, there's something going on called um, metaphysics that we need to solve when really if we just sat down and clarified elucidated how concepts actually work mm -hmm. he, what, he, what he says is the problem would dissolve it doesn't get solved it's mm -hmm. not like there was a genuine problem and now here's the correct truth answer to it Rather, the problem evaporates. And he sometimes talks of, it's like when you're in therapy and um, the cure is the problem is gone. It's not necessarily an answer to the problem. It's the, right. this way of seeing. And he liked Gestalt. He had a lot of objections to it. But what he liked about it was, um, you know, the thought that you have a picture and people see different things in it and you say, look at it this way, what do you see now? Look at it that way, what do you see now? And things can kind of, and he, that, hence what we're calling thought experiments. He likes this idea of think of it this way, imagine there's a beetle in a box or whatever. And he's mm -hmm. trying to different pictures. He's trying to, uh, and to show that really, um, if we get really clear about how our concepts work and elucidate them, particular problems will dissolve new ones may come in because language is not um, a stagnant thing right it move, it evolves with the times and in fact i think the beetle in the box is is very relevant today um because there's a lot of talk in sort of um ai stuff about black boxes and what's going on in the black box and and you get the kind of outward behavior, but you don't know what's in the black box. And right. that whole thing has come back in a new way for people doing AI intelligibility stuff. And if Wittgenstein is right, we're, we might be thinking about that stuff in a really misguided way. Um, um, so, so it can, and that these are applications, that particular application is not something Wittgenstein had in mind. But, but I think it, it, it extends to it. But what he wanted to do was to really... So young Wittgenstein wanted to dissolve the problems of philosophy once and for all. And he wrote his first book, tract The Tractatus, and he thought he'd done it, really arrogant thing to, th you know, and quit philosophy, that's it, I've done it. And he quits mm -hmm. philosophy and he famously goes off and teachers in the school and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, and then he has this kind of, I guess, a, a epiphany of sorts, but he kind of realizes that, no, he hadn't done this and that um, things were not as simple as he thought in his first book. And he comes back. So the Philosophical Investigations, which was published posthumously, where the beetle in the box um, parable is in is when he's come back to philosophy. And this time he's got no illusion that he can ever end it once and for all because he's realized, I mean, it sounds very simple now, but he's kind of realized that languages 
alive and will constantly evolve and these problems will keep reappearing in different guises and as science evolves there'll be new problems and he was right about that um, because we they've all reappeared in neuroscientific form all the right. problems of mind have reappeared as mind replaced by brain but really the stuff is kind of similar but mm -hmm. you know the language changes and they they look a little different and so on so he he kind of understood that it, the task of the philosopher might might never end but that there was a kind of the mission remains the same um, mm -hmm. and a lot of philosophers don't like this because a lot of philosophers think He's saying there's no real subject here. He's saying it's all just, we're just sort of tricked by language and we just untangle these things and, and that's it. There's no big philosophical truths to discover. And um, so there's something, up, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of nastiness about a lot that goes under the name philosophy in Wittgenstein, um, which he thinks of as bad philosophy. And then the job of good philosophy seems to just be to get rid of that. And some people think there's nothing positive here. Um, so it frustrates a lot of philosophy. He's a very divisive figure for this reason. Yeah, well, you would think that, uh, of course, if you add new variables with the uh, with growing technologies or advances in our language. Especially neuroscience. Though. I mean, there would be always a new sort of emergent, yeah. right? And so a new sort of playing field in order to sort of attempt to translate, right, right, or a new field to sort of try to get an understanding of the surroundings, right. right? right, right. So I mean, it, it stands to reason that uh, philosophy would always be evolving, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I just, mean, and that's just simplistic, but yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And then just talking about this, it made me think. Uh, so we had on the podcast a psychologist. Her name is Dr. Rachel Zoffness, and so the, so she's an expert in pain management. And the way she understands it, it's really great and really nuanced. And I so I, I'm going to kind of butcher this because I'm not the expert that she is here, but I'm going to try my best. So the way she understands it is so let's say you know kind of to preface this first by saying a lot of times you know let's say when somebody's in pain the way we kind of tend to think about it is like, oh, I was in the pain just like you were. Like, it's the same type of level, right? You're not in that much pain. And the other person might say, no, no, I'm really in pain, right? But you would say, no, I remember when I had that like level of pain, it wasn't that bad. You're, you're kind of like you're lying or, you know, you're full of shit or you might be seeking attention or whatever it is, right? So Rachel would say, actually, no. So the reason is because like, so, and she sort of simplifies the neuroscience like for public consumption. And she would say, there's something called an internal pain dial. And it's always affected by everything, right? So it's not only affected by your biology and physiology, it's affected by your environment and it's also affected by your emotions or your emotional states. So she says, if you think about it, right, what happens is the pain sensors, right? They essentially, as the pain travels through them or rather as it travels through the kind of neural pathways up to the brain, it travels between the limbic system and the limbic system is your emotional center. So what happens is that limbic system affects the level, how your brain pretty much interprets that pain. So like uh, she gives these great, cases. Uh, I don't want to go into it too much because it's not the point of our discussion, but she would give like a story about the guy who had a nail like uh, kind of, so there was a, he was a construction worker and there was a nail, and you, and you can think about this with like Phineas Gage too, but um, you, he had a nail, it pretty much, uh, it just, it went through his boot, right? So I don't remember exactly what happened. He accidentally shot the nail gun, went right through the boot and he's like, oh my God, I'm in such severe pain. We need to get you to the hospital, right? So they get this guy to the hospital. The entire time he's screaming, he's like, oh my God, this is like the most debilitating pain ever. They get to the hospital they take his boot off and they're like uh this didn't even touch your toe <laughs> so it literally oh, went right yeah. yeah it went right between his toes right and so she asked the question of like okay how is that possible how can a person
person who has who suffered no tissue damage whatsoever, right? How is that person experiencing pain, right? And in such a high degree. And so the idea there is that because the brain in a way kind of puts together this image of what it expects, right? And it expects, oh, it sees the boot, it sees the nail through the boot. And then it sees that, oh my God, like I'm really anxious right now, right? Therefore I must be in pain. So anxiety, sort of sadness, um, anger even, right? It all kind of it works on and it amplifies or even sometimes turns down your pain if you mitigate and manage it. Like let's say, if, you know, you can tone down your sadness if you could feel a little happier, if you could feel less fear, right? Then all of a sudden, amazingly, you feel less pain. And it's the same thing with attention. The more attention you focus on pain, the more your brain thinks, oh, this is like something super important. So we need to kind of interpret this as pain because we need to get help for it. Chronic pain sufferers do this all the time. They consistently focus on the pain and over years that somehow that pain amplifies and it becomes worse. So I wonder thinking about this, I wonder what Wittgenstein would have thought about that. I wonder what it's like if we're saying, okay, the skeptic, the skeptic argument is essentially, well, I can't know your pain, but then we see, well, hey, no, actually neuroscience is showing us that we sort of can understand at least to some degree what another person's pain experience is. So even if, again, going back to the idea of like my headache doesn't seem to be as bad as your headache, we could say, well, yeah, based on kind of neuroscience research, because of all of these other factors involved, again, the person's emotional state, you know, their environment, uh, obviously seeing, you know, a nail go through the boot, that actually affects your pain. So yeah, maybe for you, you might have said, you know what, I don't feel like I don't feel the nail actually even touching my toes. So hey, you know, I'm not in any pain for that person, right? It's still the exact experience, right? Meaning that that person isn't lying, they are actually still experienced pain in that amplified way. So I guess I just wonder what Wittgenstein would have thought about that having, a, you know, having had he had the research that we have available today. Sure. And first of all, I mean, that's fascinating research. And I've, I'm always, you know, just personally always interested in this. How do you decide whether someone has just like a lower or higher pain threshold or whether right. they're feeling more or, or less pain? And what is, and is there a difference? You know, the first thing Wittgenstein would want to ask is, is there a, is this just two ways of talking about the same thing? You know, right. and he, he likes to always say, imagine a culture that speaks this way. And he would say something like, imagine a culture that describes this phenomenon you've just described. And he says, now imagine one group of people talk about it this way. You're in more pain than me. And the other group of people talk about it this way. We both feel the same amount of pain, but you can't tolerate it as well as me. Yeah. And then he says, is there a difference in phenomena or is it just that there are two different language games? There's two mm -hmm. different, and how do we decide now? Of course, you know, people do have maybe lower and higher pain th thresholds. I'm not trying to deny this, but, but that's an, in, that's kind of his approach to this thing. It's to go into it kind of from the side and sort of say, well, hang, let's be careful with the language here. The, the phenomena is fascinating, but now what is it that, um, um, we're saying here and um, what's the difference is there a difference is there a pragmatic and and Wittgenstein he read a lot of um, William James the pragmatist but who mm. also did a lot of experiments so he was fascinated by studies about paralysis in relation to the will and phantom limbs and pains and you know yeah. I have can I have a pain in a leg and then my, I realized I don't have the leg. How could I have a pain in that? So he'd right. have been fascinated by this research for certain. Um, now, exactly what he would have done with it is, an, is another matter, but I expect it would have taken the, way, the, the path of these kind of questions about what, you know, 
are there, could we imagine two ways of talking here and what would the difference be between them? What do we mean when we say, I have a lower threshold than you um, for, for the same pain? What does the word pain mean there? Does it mean for the same impact? You know, because that's very different. Um, or do, how could it be the same pain if I'm in greater pain when we have the same impact? So he liked to ask these sort of slightly annoying little questions that people are like, I just want to get on with the empirical research. And he likes right. to kind of pull the brakes and ask linguistic questions. But it's not because he thinks the research isn't valuable. It's about sort of getting clarity on how we, des we describe it. Um, and he, he really didn't like things like the brain tells me or the brain recognizes right. or whatever. So he, he would have maybe objected to those ways of talking about things, but that doesn't mean that he's anti-science or objects to these experiments. Quite the opposite. He was sort of very excited by this kind of um, stuff because it gives us, apart from being interesting in itself, it gives us a kind of phenomenon where then we can then ask questions about why are we describing it this way rather than that way and what's the difference? Right. Um, and, right. and to that, yeah. Yeah. And what does he think in general of subjectivity? Sort of the subjective uh, experience. Subjectivity I mean. is quite, yeah. quite a big, big Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I just wonder because like if let's say the anti-skeptic position as well, you know, subjectivity, if you, you know, you start to kind of think about it, the idea there is that, uh, you know, we can't really know, right? So the skeptical argument is that, well, we can't know another person's pain. I mean, but how would he see subjectivity, especially from, yeah. I guess, an empirical lens, if at so, all? So, um, I've got a view on this, so I can tell you what I think, but it is, okay. it is a little, not my view in particular, but the, the topic is a little contentious for, for Wittgenstein. Um, but, but I think he, he over the years, um, you, if you look at his writing, his personal writing and his philosophy over the years, there's a real divide between what he says about subjectivity and related concepts as a philosophical problem mm -hmm. and what he says about it as an everyday real life problem. Right. So when it comes to philosophy, it's all anti-skeptical in principle. There's nothing we, we can't know, understand each other, communicate um, and so on, because there's no metaphysical problem. There's no unsolvable epistemic problem and so on. But if you look at his real life and kind of psych, so, you know, I've used metaphysical and epistemic as kind of in principle worries about knowledge and subjectivity and so on. But if you contrast those two psychological, cultural, um, um, linguistic, and there, the subjective for him was something really hard to overcome. You look at his private letters to to his friends and they're all about how we will never be able to understand each other. Your mind works completely differently from mine. He ends friendships on this ground, <laughs> like in really quite brutal terms. Wow. And it's all about, um, there's nothing left in common between us. You were raised this way and I have this and there is no way we could, you know, and some of it looks, feels a bit precious, you know, Russell, he will never understand me. Moore will never, but then he goes on into, I could never understand this person and I could never understand that. Per and it's really striking that 
he thinks at, at a kind of interpersonal level, whether the, whether the obstacle is cultural, psychological, one of kind of general temperament and disposition. I mean, the things he says, I mean, they're, you know, I, I don't want to say them because, you know, out of context, they, they sound pretty, the things he says about people from other cultures and countries, I mean, it's really quite shocking stuff. And, you know, part of it is of his time, but there's, there's a real sort of, um, the subjective is huge. And some of it is interpersonal, as in this particular person and me, mm-hmm. and some of it is the English, the Germans, the Chinese, you know, like in groups of people who might fail to understand one another in this kind of very late 19th century, early 20th century, sort of pessimistic anthropology of some kind. Mm -hmm. So so I think on the one hand, he thinks there's no philosophical problem with the subjective and the objective. There's no kind of real mystery there. But that doesn't mean that we're all, you know, um, walking around understanding one another perfectly, quite the opposite. He, he's really quite sort of extremely skeptical about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so the subjective there becomes something, um, he's almost paranoid, you know, it's mm-hmm. really quite bad. Yeah, wow. So, but I mean, it seems like the way he lived his life was actually as though he accepted the skeptical perspective. So he, 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 accepts it but not as this kind of philosophical problem i think the difference is that in principle the cultural and psychological stuff can Mm -hmm. be overcome right you don't overcome it with a um a clever thought experiment you Mm -hmm. you you overcome it by spending a lot of time with the other person and doing the things they do and eating and drinking with them and 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 sharing and this fit with his philosophy in a way sharing practices and then the common language will flow out of that so the answer isn't philosophical the answer is you do this with shared behavior and and shared activities in life that's how you overcome the the subjective you don't overcome it with a a a clever argument but you're right that in some ways, in his personal life, there is a kind of almost solipsism, almost skepticism. Right. Yeah, and I want a kind of loneliness, maybe. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad you actually said that. So I, I mean I know we don't have that much time, <laughs> but if it's if it's okay with you, uh, okay. So I want to actually kind of focus on the person that he was because I know we talk a lot about ideas and I, I love it and it's great, but I think it's so much more important to talk about like the actual people and how they live their lives and how they embodied their philosophy. So I want to actually read a quote. So I okay. So this is based on the New York Times article on Wittgenstein. However, I'm actually going to read a quote from one of my blogs because I couldn't get access to the New York Times argue, uh, article. So uh, this is just about the person. He he was and how he viewed uh, morality, which I think is really important. Uh, okay, so let me just start. Okay, so for, Lu- for, Ludwig Wigen- for Ludwig Wittgenstein character, authenticity was the most significant facet of philosophy. In his conception of its purpose, Wittgenstein asserted that philosophy was, in essence, a working on oneself. And he used the act of confession, which I really love and something I hope we get into. So he used the act of confession as a means of self-improvement. In the tradition of Leo Tolstoy and St. Augustine, the notable Christian ascetics, 
works. Ludwig conceived of confession not only as a way to punish himself, but also to gain insight into the consequences of his actions. He conflated confession with intrapersonal awareness, noting that dishonesty toward others was also dishonesty toward oneself. Although his life was full of unrelenting self-torment, stemming from a perpetual quest for self-perfection, it exemplified the true meaning of authenticity, which is the courage to acknowledge one's flaws and to experience the acute guilt which accompanies them. So can you talk a little bit about that point of Wittgenstein? Because in a sense, right, he was a not only just a perfectionist, but he felt like, well, I mean, maybe not a perfectionist in the sense of he believed he was perfect, but he believed that perfection was possible. And he spent a lot of time, like literally beating the shit out of himself in order to become this better person and to become in some sense a saint. Is that kind of the sort of understanding you had of him? Um, yeah, I, 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 um, I know the person who wrote this New York, you know, he's a friend of mine, the person yeah. who wrote this New York Times article. And I remember discussing it with, with him when, when he was writing it. Yeah. Um, so I know exactly what, what, what you're talking about. And I think that was a, a very good summary of, of the point. So he is, he's a perfectionist. Certainly that stuff I was saying before about I can't understand anyone or no one can understand. That's because he sets the bar really right. high yeah. for what mm. counts as understanding, you know, if it's not perfect, right? And so he is a perfectionist in this way. I don't know if it's quite that he believes it's attainable. I mean, I think he thinks logically it's attainable, whether he thinks it's actually possible in the time we have on earth or whatever to attain it. That's another matter, but he's certainly... He's got this high bar and he's got a very high bar, I guess, for morality, but that can mean a lot of different things. It doesn't mean that he was a very moral person. And, you know, I don't know the guy and I'm not here to tell you he was moral or immoral, but, but it, it's that, you know, he may have had completely the wrong standards or he may have, he himself thought he was a, a moral failing in many respects. But the point is that it did torture him that he really thought we had this kind of um, duty um, to be completely honest, completely authentic. And he really, really despised a lot of the um, sort of more theatrical, let's call them aspects of life in a Cambridge college, for example. And you know, the activities of, you know, high table and tea and all the kind of more poncy stuff. He, he really didn't like, um, f famously, he comes from a very rich family, but gives his money away to, to his siblings um, and some causes and, and so on. Um, and then can't, has to borrow money for train fare and, and things and lives in this, no, no pictures on, on Wittgenstein's wall, let me tell you, blank walls, Right. very kind of austere but there's this duty of not deceiving oneself not right. deceiving others and i guess you know i think that is a personal thing it's a personality thing that to some degree is separable from his philosophy but i think he also thinks that he really despised any philosophy that was theatrics or um sort of he he hated a kind of philosophy it wasn't popular philosophy is the wrong word for it it was his philosophy that makes people think they've understood something when they haven't mm -hmm. mm. you know he hated these lectures whether in the same in science these lectures where people 
come out thinking they've understood something that mm-hmm. they really haven't. And there's a kind of trick has been played. And he thought that was really inauthentic in that it's better to come out thinking this is bloody hard and I didn't get it. Or, right. Or right, right. Sorry, right. Mike, I think I need a, a drink of, of, of water. It's, it's okay. It's okay. Um, but so just to kind of add on to that, right? It's so impressive. I mean, as, as terrible as it was for his <laughs> mental health, it's really impressive that here's this guy. And then for him, confession was, it seemed like the ultimate of life, that if you weren't able to confess, not just your sins, but just like who you are in total, it seemed like for him, then life was pointless or the meaning of it was tied up in progress. And, you know, just kind of chiseling away at these flaws that people have or that you have. And uh, yes, and he... He very famously tells his, I think it was, I think it was Norman Malcolm. He tells what one of his friends that he's not religious, but he can't help seeing things from a religious point of view. Mm-hmm. And he had some Catholic friends like Elizabeth Anscombe. And I think while he himself lacked faith in God, mm-hmm. had that Catholic disposition, you know, he understood that need for confession and and so on so he he's sort of someone who very different from kind of new atheists today he's someone who while he lacks the faith right is, is in other ways com- completely um sees things as if he was religious and i think that that confession aspect of it is 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 a is a part of that i mean i i, I don't know how much you remember from the new york times article but he you know he did hit some children yeah. very, and, and it was and wow. lethally. And so, so it's not just like, you know, getting beat up because you made a wrong turn or something. I mean, right. he, he, you know, it's a pretty bad thing to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else, you know, to put it mildly. And I think that was one of the things he was most so, um, sort of, upset about and trying to figure out you know what kind of person am i to have done such a such a thing and he didn't brush it off lightly but this is not you know he was perfectionist about all sorts of things and maybe too harsh on himself on other things but this was something that was really very serious what happened um yeah. what's really great about this is just like it's even a concept in psychotherapy now where you would use confession uh, in terms of like let's say perfecting yourself and you know becoming a what you would consider because in therapy we don't we, we try our best obviously not to impose our morality on people but what you consider to be a moral person but there's this technique where you would use confession and you would essentially say okay if i screw up right i have to tell somebody about it right so you hold yourself accountable by actually pretty much forcing yourself to tell people about some of these flaws that you would normally keep to yourself so it's so interesting that he kind of had this concept in mind. And look, I'm sure it's not just it's not unique to therapy. I'm sure anybody who's kind of involved in any level of introspection would want to do this. But I love that sense of accountability where the idea here is that by confessing, you're now making it known to the person that like, hey, here's this thing that I need to work on and I'm holding myself accountable for it. That's it. And that somehow if you tell no one, you're lying to the whole world. Somehow mm-hmm. you've kept this thing, this bad thing about you and it needs to be if you're going to be honest about it and overcome it, you need to share it with someone. Yeah. You're also essentially parsing out how you feel um, in a sense. Some people may do that by writing, right? You'll, you'll put your thoughts into, into words and then you are able to critically think about how you feel around a given subject 
essentially. Right. Well, confessing may work in the same way. I mean, as opposed to the subjective experience of maybe you get these automatic thoughts, ruminating thoughts, or, or, or just let's say it's it's it, it comes at you so fast, the automaticity of how you feel about something. So you never quite really sit with it and think about it. But right. when you either verbalize how you feel or write it down, right. then essentially you get to really come to terms with how you feel about that particular thing yeah it's general but yeah and it's because it's a shared experience like we can't escape from having other people around us and from having them influence us from us influencing them and i think that this is it seems from my perspective at least that this is a core concept for wittgenstein like the shared understanding seems to be at the core of i don't know maybe truth or finding truth i think that's right and that's in a way that the tragedy of wittgenstein is that this is very important for him but he's not really sure he got it with many people in life and he says as i get older the number of people i can understand who understand me keeps dropping doesn't right. get better it gets worse as he gets older he says um for whatever reason people get set in their ways or whatever but yeah he kept a private diary some of it coded i think and it writing it down was as important as or in a different way important from telling people getting it reflecting on it and writing it down and so on in this kind of very serious um manner but yeah there's a kind of the thought that this is so important and he's not sure he really got it with many people you know i mean he he says i've had a, a wonderful life on his deathbed or words to that effect i don't remember so it's not i'm not trying to paint it out like some sort of like the, the guy died in misery or anything, but right. um, th there's something touching there nonetheless, I think. Yeah. And what's interesting too about his death is that he actually ended up, I, I don't know if he ever finished the work, but he was still writing a book on his deathbed. Like he would literally get up while like, he was suffering. Well, he wasn't? He was, No, no, he was. He yeah. was writing what what's um, since been published as Uncertainty, ah, which is mm -hmm. a, a wonderful book. My colleague Danielle Moyle Sharuk works a lot on it. Um, the last entry is days before he died. Right. Yeah. And it's so crazy that he was literally just like chugging along as he was pretty much near death and knowing that he was near death. Wow. So, all right, Constantine, thank you so much for coming on, man. This was such a great show. And awesome. just, yeah, it seems like, I mean, most importantly, it seems like what you're trying to tell us is that Wittgenstein is still an incredibly relevant thinker. It's my great pleasure. Sorry we didn't get to talk about Bob. I went on about Wittgenstein too long, but it's great to meet you both and to Me be too. on the show. And Yeah, and, and hey, man, you're welcome back anytime. So we could do a whole show on Bob Dylan at some point next year. My pleasure. Anytime. Absolutely. And then just before we go, um, let's plug your stuff. Uh, where can we find you on social media? Where can you find me? Um, certainly on Twitter, probably the mm -hmm. best place to find me. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just my initial and my surname, but I'm mm -hmm. not sure. Uh, I mean, we'll put up a website. If you, you can well. find me on, on Instagram, but if you don't like cats or vegan food, you're not going to really want to go there. <laughs> uh -huh. I hear you. But yeah, yeah we'll we're, put up we're good. I'm going to post all the uh, the links, uh, essentially. No, yeah. no worries. No worries yeah. about blood. Yeah. So thank you so much again for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. Real pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Man. Bye. See you. Bye bye. Cool.
Well, right. guys, uh, first of all, that was awesome. I, I actually I haven't read too much uh, mm-hmm. Wittgenstein. He's really complicated. I pronounced man. the name wrong yeah. probably five different times. Yeah, but... there are even like literally <laughs> graduate students that don't understand them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you this: I have a better understanding of them today than I did yesterday. One hundred percent. Anyway, guys, if you want to follow us, you could follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, uh, as well as TikTok. Yes, and at Same Seize, Seize the Moment Podcast. That's right. Mm-hmm. And at C's underscore podcast on Twitter, like subscribe, hit the, bell. hit the bell. And guys, thank you so much for watching. Have a happy new year and see you next year.